Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, for almost a century, Bach Tower Gardens has served as a bird sanctuary where visitors can enjoy music from the singing tower while walking nature trails. Bach wanted the centerpiece of his gardens to be the world's most beautiful tower. We'll discuss naval records from the Civil War. Specifically, we're looking at the official records of the Union and Confederate navies in the War of the Rebellion. And we'll talk about the early history of Miami. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. If sea levels were to rise to the point where the coastline of Florida was submerged, our peninsular state would become a series of islands. At the heart of one of those islands, a neo-Gothic tower of coquina and marble would rise 205 feet into the sky. Bach Tower Gardens near Lake Wales is on one of the highest points in the state, 298 feet above sea level. President Calvin Coolidge presided over the dedication of the Singing Tower and its adjacent bird sanctuary and gardens on February 1, 1929. The facility was conceived and built by Edward Bach as a gift to the American people for the opportunities he had been given. Bach was born in 1863 in Donshelder, Netherlands. He immigrated to the United States with his family in 1870. He grew from a boy who didn't speak English to become a confidant of American presidents and a friend to literary figures such as Mark Twain and Rudyard Kipling. He made a fortune in publishing. Brian Asoski is Director of Marketing and Public Relations at Bach Tower Gardens. Edward Bach came to this country from the Netherlands when he was just six years old, immigrated with his family up to the uh, Pennsylvania area. And um, he loved to write and uh, eventually became a publisher. You know, started uh, in the publishing industry, worked his way in from the ground up. Uh, at 26 years old, he became the editor-in-chief of the Ladies Home Journal magazine, uh, which was the first magazine in the world to have over a million subscribers. So over the course of his life, he was interested in writing and in architecture and in beauty. And at a very young age, his grandmother told him to make you the world a bit better or more beautiful because you've lived in it. And so Edward Bach pretty much lived his life that way. And uh, when he got older and had the financial means available to him, he decided that the property adjacent to the Mountain Lake Sanctuary area where he uh, had a winter home would be a good place to make the world more beautiful and to leave his mark. So he decided to build Bach Tower Gardens uh, at that time and um, sort of the rest is, rest is history. That was in 1929 when the gardens were completed. Bach would come from Pennsylvania to spend his winters near Lake Wales. He enjoyed watching sunsets from Iron Mountain and decided to stop plans to build a housing development there by purchasing the land. 
He hired landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. to transform a sand hill into a lush and thriving garden sanctuary. Olmsted worked with his father, who designed New York's Central Park. He landscaped many of the most prominent landmarks in Washington, D.C., and served as the first director of the National Park Service. It took Olmsted six years to create the Bach Tower Gardens, bringing in rich soil, developing an elaborate irrigation system, and planting acres of carefully selected trees, plants, and flowers. The pathways through the gardens all led to the Singing Tower. The idea was to slowly reveal things to guests as they walk through the gardens. Uh, so the gardens back then, when they were first uh, dedicated uh, and completed, were much smaller than they are today. Um, the original entrance was in a different place. But the pathways were all specifically meant to be meandering, and you would slowly go around corners uh, in anticipation of what you would see next. All the while, you might catch a glimpse of the tower, and then it would disappear behind some oaks or behind some other, uh, other types of trees. Um, so you would start and then finish at the tower. That would sort of be the culmination of your journey through uh, Olmsted's original garden. When the tower comes into full view, it is a spectacular sight. The tower is a combination of Gothic and Art Deco influences made of coquina stone from St. Augustine and pink and gray marble from Georgia. It was designed by architect Milton B. Maderi, who also created the Washington Memorial Chapel at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and the Justice Department building in Washington, D.C. Carved into the tower is a unique combination of sacred, secular, and distinctly Floridian images. The bird, animal, and floral depictions were created by sculptor Lee Laurie, best known for his Atlas statue at Rockefeller Center in New York. Brian Ososki. Bach wanted uh, the centerpiece of his gardens to, to be the world's most beautiful tower. The story goes that there was talk about putting a water tower up in the gardens because back then we didn't have the modern day irrigation that we have today. And Bach would have nothing, nothing of it, having a water tower in the garden. So he hired architect uh, and fellow Philadelphian Milton B. Maderi to, hire, uh, to, to build uh, the world's most beautiful tower. And it served several purposes. One, of course, there are still water tanks in the tower that were used to irrigate the gardens in the early years. Uh, two, to serve as the centerpiece of the gardens. And three, to house the 60-bell carillon. Um, he remembered carillons from his childhood home in the Netherlands uh, because, you know, half of the world's carillons are in the Low Country. And so uh, he felt that that would be a, sort of a good iconic centerpiece uh, for, for the gardens. But yeah, the design, Maderi brought with him uh, three uh, master craftsmen to assist in the design of the tower. Lee Laurie, as you mentioned, was the sculptor. J.H. Dulles Allen did the tile work. And Samuel Yellen uh, did all of the uh, metal work, was a master iron worker. Uh, of the day. So what you see in the tower, yes, there is a lot of animals, uh, a lot of different species of, of wildlife. I mean, Bach's instruction to Maderi and the craftsmen were to make the tower beautiful and to have it reflect nature. And that's exactly what they were able to do. Metalworker Samuel Yellen crafted the large brass doors on the north side of the tower that depict the story of creation, as well as the wrought iron gates leading to the doors. On the south side of the tower, Yellen contributed to the sundial that features a bronze snake amid the signs of the zodiac and Roman numerals that display the time of day. Yellen's work can be seen on college campuses including Yale, Harvard, and Princeton, and on numerous churches including the Washington National Cathedral.
tile maker J.H. Dulles Allen created the elaborate floor of the tower and added color to the top third of the structure. Walking through the gardens, a visitor might hear the tower before they see it. The Singing Tower houses one of only 600 carillons in the world. It has 60 bronze bells, the largest of which weighs about 12 tons. A keyboard instrument at the top of the tower is attached to clappers which strike the bells, creating music. We took a very small elevator to the top of the tower where carillonor Geert de Hollander pounded levers and stomped on pedals to send music throughout the gardens. A lot of people, you know, are curious as to what's inside the Singing Tower. So there's several levels. Uh, when you first enter behind the great brass door, uh, which was Samuel Yellen's sort of crowning jewel uh, of the metalwork, the door incidentally uh, depicts the story of creation in Genesis, and it's made of solid teak and brass and weighs approximately 1,100 pounds. Uh, so behind that door is what we refer to as the Founder's Room, uh, once Edward Bach's private study. Moving up from there, we, you will have the uh, Anton Breeze Carillon Library and the Chow Research Center. So all of Bach Tower Garden's archives are housed in the tower, and we also have one of the world's largest collections of Carillon-related books, tapes, manuscripts, and that sort of thing. So that's housed in the tower. On another level, there is a maintenance workshop. One of the levels houses the uh, big iron water tanks uh, that I had described earlier that used to uh, irrigate the gardens. And as we move up, we get to the playing studio, the Carolineur's studio. Uh, Geert de Hollander from Belgium is our Carolineur. Uh, he's been with us since 2012 uh, and is one of the best Carolineurs in the world. Has won all sorts of international competitions. Uh, he, he now uh, judges competitions and also teaches master classes and is a guest performer all over the world. So we're very lucky to have Geert here with us. So his studio is there. That's here where he works and where he composes and that kind of thing. And he also has the best view of the gardens you can ever imagine. And then uh, directly above the, the studio is the playing cabin uh, where the instrument is, is housed. Uh, the instrument itself is, a, is referred to as a clavier. It looks very much like a cross between a piano and an organ. Instead of keys, you have what we call batons, and they're situated much like the white keys and the black keys on a, on a piano. Attached to each of those batons, or levers, there is a, uh, a line that connects through the ceiling to clappers on the inside of the bells. The bells are made of bronze. Uh, we have 60 bells with a combined weight of over 60 tons, so it really is uh, one of the world's heavier instruments, and uh, because of its weight, it's able to really project that beautiful sound. Geert de Hollander is director of Carillon Services at Bach Tower Gardens and plays the instrument located on the top floor of the tower. My dad is a Carillonar too. So I grew up climbing towers since I was four or five years old. Not interested in bells, interested in secret doors and steps and owls and bats and everything, you know, if you find in Europe. Uh, so I'm, I was born in Belgium. Um, and then by the time I was 13, my dad, who was also an instructor at the Carillon School, said, I'm gonna take you to the school. And so I combined that with high school, graduated when I was 17, 
And he said, I'm going to show you the most beautiful instrument in the world. And he flew me from Brussels straight to Lake Wales. The Hollander explains what makes the carillon at Bachtower Gardens unique among the world's 600 carillons. There are beautiful bells all over the world, but there is always something else going wrong. Like uh, the carillon I played before Antwerp Cathedral was in the middle of the city. And everybody, you know, it's, it's the first thing you hear when you stop playing music is noise because it's in the middle of a city. So it's not nice for a musician. It's difficult for our listeners to find a quiet spot, etc. So this here, this tower in this sanctuary is unique in the world. Nowhere else you'll find this. The, the gardens are like a natural concert hall. No traffic, beautiful peace, serene. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's a dream for me to play, to perform. And it's, it's a dream for the listeners because they can hear every single note, no matter how quiet I play. In addition to the carillon music that rings from the tower, many varieties of flowers, plants, and trees attract visitors to Bach Tower Gardens. Brian Asoski. The gardens, like many gardens, are seasonal. I think uh, a lot of people know us best for our azalea collection, which, you know, the azaleas, they bloom in February and March, typically. It's one of the busiest times of the year for us when we're in peak bloom. We have uh, over 100 different varieties of camellias as well, and when the azaleas and the camellias, their blooms overlap, it's just a spectacular uh, display of color. We have uh, a lot of different types of ferns, of course the oaks and the pines. The lands surrounding us are the original sand hill habitat of the Lake Wales Ridge, so you'll see a lot of uh, original plantings outside of the core gardens much like you would have seen authentic Florida over 100,000 years ago when this was an island and we were surrounded by the ocean. A lot of Florida natives, a few tropicals, but more uh, plants that are native to Florida. A lot of blooming varieties. There's always something different in the gardens to see throughout the year and every season. Of course, the palms uh, of many varieties. And all these plants, all the flora and fauna, attract a lot of different birds. Edward Bach died in January 1930, less than a year after Bach Tower Gardens opened, and he is buried at the base of the tower. Today, Bach Tower Gardens hosts events throughout the year, operates a rare plant conservation program, and an active education program. We spoke with Brian Asoski and Carolinar Geert de Hollander. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch archived editions of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, today we're looking at some naval records from the Civil War. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Uh, specifically, we're looking at the official records of the Union and Confederate navies in the War of the Rebellion. Uh, and this is a long-running series that was uh, actually started in the 1890s by the federal government. And this series is a companion series to the official records of the armies of the War of the Rebellion, Confederate and Union armies. And that process actually started back uh, just at the end of the war, so the late 1860s. And it kind of spun out of the huge volumes of correspondence that were being published as official records within the U.S. Congress. And they started this uh, printing process. Basically, they were compiling a compendium of all of the official records from both Union and Confederate armies. They started in the 1860s, were publishing these volumes up into the late 19th century. And then in the mid-1890s, the federal government decided to publish all of the naval records, which was, of course, another major component of the, of the Civil War. And Florida played a, a major role, of course, in a lot of naval engagements during the period of the Civil War, all the way up until the very end, 1865. Uh, so this naval companion is, is a really interesting and insightful collection of original documents. Even though they were published much later, towards the end of the war, they're based on original correspondence records from the 1860s. And this publication went on into the, the 1920s. In fact, the last volume of Series 2, which was Volume 3, was published in 1927. So we're talking about many, many decades after the end of the war. Many of these, many of these veterans had, had long since passed on, but they live on today as a really great record of the official accounts of, of what happened during that time period. Now, you have here some examples from the Florida Historical Society archive of, of some of these uh, correspondence records. Yeah, that's right. The first volume we're looking at is Series 1, Volume 13, and this is for the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron, and it covers a period from May of 1862 through April of 1863. And I've actually opened this up to one particular set of documents because it, it gives a great illustration of both sides of the same event. As I said earlier, this includes both Union and Confederate correspondence records. Of course, the Confederate records were a bit more sparse, so it really was just what was captured, you know, whatever they could find after the war and compile. But looking at this record, this is from September 11th of 1862. This is from a U.S. gunboat captain. Uh, the ship was called the Huron, and he's describing actions that took place at the mouth of the St. John's River, just outside of Jacksonville. And I'll read just quickly here. He says, quote, they fired as many as 10 shots at me before I could slip the cable and cut the kedge adrift and get in a position to open fire, unquote. Now he's talking about an attack from a Confederate battery that was set up at the St. John's Bluff. Now, if we turn the page, we can see here dated September 12th of 1862 from Baldwin, Florida. This is a report from the Brigadier General Joseph Finnegan, who was the uh, commanding officer of the Confederate armies. And he says here, quote, I have placed a battery of six guns on the St. John's Bluff, which was not discovered by the enemy until completed. Soon after, it was engaged for four and a half hours by two gunboats. We crippled one of the boats and drove the other off. Lost on our side, one man killed and eight slightly wounded. Unquote. Now, if you were to go on and read more of these letters, you'll see that each side is a little bit different, and actually each side, uh, of course, claimed victory when they were reporting to their commanding officers. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting perspective during the war period. Now, the second volume we're looking at is uh, Series 1. This is Volume 17, and this is a different region. It actually covers the East Gulf Blockading Squadron from February of 1862 until July of 1865. And this is a little more interesting. This is a report from a commanding officer of the USS Stars and Stripes. 
and he's reporting about the capture of two Confederates who gave themselves up. But there's one person in particular, a guy named Roderick McClellan, and when they found him, he had $2,400 in gold and $60,000 worth of Confederate bonds and coupons on him. But it turns out this guy was actually a British citizen who was born in Canada, happened to be living in the South, was impressed into service into the Confederate Navy, and was trying to give himself up by 1864. And instead of being paroled, this particular commander ends up sending him to Fort Jefferson. So he becomes a prisoner of war. So it's really interesting. We really get down to a very granular level about the experiences of some of these individuals throughout the broader context of the Civil War. So we have these original records here at the Library of Florida History, but are they accessible elsewhere? Yeah, they actually are. Because this collection of, of records, both the Army and Navy records, are so important for researchers today and for genealogists as well, a lot of these records have been digitized. In fact, the Cornell University Library System has digitized the entire series. So you can do a keyword search and, and actually search through the index and, and find individual people, individual ships. You can search chronologically. But here at the Library of Florida History, as you said, we do have a complete set of the Army records and almost a complete set of the Navy records. We're we're missing just one volume at the very end, uh, 1864, that covers the Western Gulf uh, blockading squadrons. But, you know, this series is really, really very important for researchers. But you have to be careful when you go through this material. Not everything was saved. A lot of these after-action reports were published long after the actual event took place. So memories changed a little bit. And because the publication went on into the 20th century, some of this information is, is a little bit spotty, but it's a great companion to other original source material. And it's really necessary if you're doing any kind of, of broad research about the Civil War. The official records are, are a really great resource for, for that type of research. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The Mary Jane Cocoa to Cape Town was bound. We bade her heave to go and swung her bow round. And to Davy Jones Locker without more delay. We set her afire and so sailed on our way. Huzzah, huzzah for the Florida's crew. We'll range with bold Moffitt the world through and through. This is Florida Frontiers. Miami is often thought of as one of Florida's newer cities, but it has a long and rich history. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. South Florida, or Miami in particular, has an origin story, like lots of people have an origin story. And the origin story goes something like, once upon a time, and this is the late 19th century, a group of pioneers arrived and turned wilderness into what later becomes known as the Magic City. And there are these two characters who are both pioneers, and then they are the epitome of this modern world that emerges out of it. That was Andrew Frank, author of Before the Pioneers, Indians, Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami. He recently talked with us about the history of Miami. So-called pioneers are often imagined as carving out empty wilderness to turn it into civilization. As Andrew Frank explains, while founders Henry Flagler and Julia Tuttle are given credit for establishing Miami, there were already people living in and traveling to Miami long before they arrived. 
by the 1890s, we have, we have a large cacophony of voices that call Miami its home. Bahamian and African-American laborers. Um, we have Bahamian sailors that are coming in and out. We have shipwreckers from across the American South, some coming up from Key West, but mostly from coastal communities in North Florida and Georgia, but some from further away from there. We have the beginnings of grist mills and kunti mills that are proliferating around the area. We have, um, and then we start having all sorts of farmers who imagine not the interior of Florida that we'll see a couple generations later, um, but really the coast of Florida as this great untapped agricultural boon. Even though the Tequesta tribe lived in Miami for thousands of years, settlers and tourists in the late 19th century romanticized Miami as a wild place without a past. So every person who came to Miami that I can read their writings from, say, like 1860 to 1890, they describe it with language like jungle. They complain of mosquitoes. There's a third Seminole War soldier who wrote sarcastically, but he wrote mosquitoes, if you weren't covered up at night, would suck all the blood out of sentinels who were out on guard duty at night. So fear of alligators, exotic wildlife, uh, mangroves everywhere, no dirt. So there's really no soil in South Florida along the, along the coast. Um, and indeed, most of the non-natives who lived there for most of its history were people who went there by accident. So we had people who were shipwrecks, right, and they, they find their way there. But they're not going there. They just find their way there. And we have all sorts of people who go there because they have, don't have options elsewhere. So Runaway slaves would come there because their options elsewhere in the American South were significantly worse. To attract visitors, Henry Flagler began to market Miami as an exotic tourist destination. Andrew Frank told me more. This is not a beautiful place. So when Flagler comes in, he, there are descriptions of him hiring all sorts of laborers and giving them machetes. And an overseer would say, I'll be back in a month. And they would come back and the vines would be greater than they were beforehand. And so they had to bring in all sorts of machinery and they had to bring in uh, millions of cubic feet of white sand in order to create fill and make beaches. Right? That's the story of South Florida. And so Flagler extending the railroad is part of it, uh, but the ability to make land that people and plant palm trees, which is why they call it the Royal Palm, as a hotel, right? they had to create something that looked exotic. And when they were done with it, this is where it gets about salesmanship, when they're done with creating something that looks less like jungle and more like tourist destination, they had to find ways to let people become aware of it because the reputation of Miami was such that no one wanted to visit. And the way that Flagler did it and others, say Carl Fisher did in Fisher Island, um, so he would get elephants. They would import them from the circus. And they would put them on the beach and they put bathing beauties on the top or golfers on the top or something, something ridiculous and hope that newspapers would take pictures. And they would see that Miami and South Florida in general is remarkably different than what the perception and the original topography actually was. Henry Flagler and Julia Tuttle are remembered as the founders of Miami. But as Andrew Frank points out, we should also remember Miami's forgotten past before the arrival of Flagler's Railroad and Hotels. We think of city founders as these are people who come to a place that was empty and they turn it into something that fits their vision rather than a place that was inhabited by Indians. In the case of Miami, Indians, slaves, Spaniards, British, Bahamians, runaway runaways from various armies, right? There's this long list of people who are there, but somehow we fixate as a, as a culture on, on these two boosters of, of the Gilded Age, and that's, yeah, that's a very American story, both in terms of what we remember and what we forget. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org where you can see web extras to accompany this program and much more. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Robert Casanello, Ben DiBiase, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.